You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 163. Hashtag silence is not spiritual. Breaking the silence on violence against women and girls. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, we certainly couldn't not say something about this topic. With everything that's been going on in the media and in the news over the last, gosh, what has been, you know, five or six months, there's so much happening. There's so much conversation going on. We're at the very beginning of a revolution, which has needed to happen, and yet there is so much complexity here. Uh, And yet today we're going to try and tackle one piece of this and one way that one organization is responding. And and I think that there will be um, some takeaways for all of us on how we can think about this uh, differently and anew, especially here in the new year. I've heard someone say this is a defining moment in history. Here in the news, we see it felt like for for a few weeks, like there was a sexual harassment revelation every single week and someone lost their jobs. And how do we respond to that? And one of the things that a group of my close friends began to look at is how do we as women respond in a context that we're part of, of our churches? And so it isn't about alienating ourselves from media or even uh, pointing fingers at men who are bad and things like that, but really taking the opportunity with this attention to look at issues that surround violence against women and girls. And this is really important from the ending human trafficking perspective, because we know that the, when we look at prevention models, many of the girls who end up in being trafficked, had an experience either with sexual abuse as a child, with sexual assault, that left them in a in a vulnerable position and may have run away or found themselves in a in a place where they were much more recruitable or even abducted or managed. All of those things you can you can go back and listen to some of those podcasts. But how do we be proactive now? And so this group has launched hashtag silence is not spiritual. And the first time I heard the hashtag idea, I thought, oh, that sounds like sin by silence. And sin by silence is the name of a documentary that Vanguard alum Olivia Klaus Morrow created based on our beloved founders um, research Dr. Elizabeth Leonard's um, on convicted survivors, women who had been battered and and ended up in prison because their husbands died in an altercation at their hand. And so the idea that breaking that silence is part of the key to ending violence was this was an echo of that. And I wanted to pursue that. So I said, yes, I'll sign. And I'm like the fourth signature or so on this. Now it has almost 5,000 signatures when I looked yesterday. 
And the idea is that this has gone beyond awareness. We push things out. You've got Twitter stuff. You retweet the things you like. I push things out on Facebook. But this means that you actually have to go to the site and sign it. So it's real engagement. Uh, we're not measuring how many hits, how many people saw it. I mean, just when I the first day I posted, it had a hundred, uh, no, a thousand four hundred and seventy views. Um, that doesn't matter. That does not matter. We watch things happen. We're bystanders. This is about getting involved during a defining moment in history, and we want people to go to the website and sign that they are standing with women and standing up for women. Those are the two action statements. As people uh, are listening to this episode, I know one of the calls to action we'll have is to go visit the website, Sandy. Uh, when you do sign, what is it you're committing to? What is, uh, what is the organization really trying to do in order to affect change? Well, we want to go beyond the hashtag Me Too or even the hashtag church too. We, and we don't want to be out there saying, oh, who's doing this wrong? Who's doing this wrong? We want to look in our own community. And Vanguard is a, a private Christian university. The leaders that launch this are women who are in leadership in, in the evangelical church world. And so we want to, to take responsibility in our own context. We want to look at what's happening in our churches. One of the things that they were very intentional about was doing their research through research communities that are part of the churches, like they use LifeWay Research. They did a, they did a poll, a survey, LifeWay Research did, of a thousand pastors and discovered that 74% did not, they knew about violence against women, but they had very unrealistic expectations about if it was present in their own churches. Mm, interesting. And so how do you, how do you move forward and create space to stand with women, to stand up for women, if you think it doesn't exist in your church? And so we have to we have to break that silence. That's why it's silence is not spiritual. Being a voice, and how many times have you heard me say Proverbs thirty one eight says, "Be a voice for those who have no voice. Ensure justice for those being crushed." And that's really the premise for me for signing this. It isn't an option for me. I want to sign this. I want to support a movement that calls us to reflect in our own community, in our own backyard. Well, and you I think one of the challenges with the current uh, defining moment, revolution, whatever term we want to use that's going on in the, in the uh, broader, broader society right now is the tendency for us to you know, look outward and to look at what's going on everywhere else and in Hollywood and in government and all the places that we've seen the, these situations emerge. And it is sometimes a secondary consideration of what potentially is going on in our own community um, and what do we have some ability to influence. And I think about the, uh, I think about Stephen Covey's work who wrote the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and making the distinction between circle of concern and circle of influence. Our circle of concerns for most of us are much bigger than our circles of influence. And if we spend our time focused on our circle of concern and only there, uh, we limit our ability to influence. But if we spend our time really looking at where we can influence, we grow our circle of influence. And so I think 
from what I'm hearing you say, this is really calling us to look in our own backyard, as you said, and in our own communities and in our own uh, faith institutions, and to take the responsibility for making sure we're we're starting um, within our own circle of influence to take action. That's such an insightful example, because in the statement, we start off with the idea that in Genesis, God declares that all people are made in the image of God. And if you go go to the statement and read it, you'll discover it actually includes the perpetrators. Uh, they're created in the image of God. And when when we begin to look at the at the issue of violence against women, including sexual harassment and assault, trafficking, rape as a weapon of war, the the focus at the beginning is global. One out of every three women have experienced physical and or sexual violence, and two hundred million girls are missing. And we've talked about that on previous podcasts because of of sun preference. The preference for having a boy in many parts of the world. And um, one out of every three women have experienced some sort of violence. And then we bring it in to the U.S. According to the 2016 Center for Disease Control report, one out of every five women in the U.S. have experienced rape or attempted rape. And 44% have experienced some other form of sexual violence, including coercion, unwanted sexual contact, non-contact, unwanted sexual experiences. And, you know, we're not going to go into a lot of numbers and things at this point, but the idea that we start with that circle of concern and we often see big numbers that are global, but then we have to get down to our own community. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned this, Sandy. I mean, if you think about some of these numbers, um, and we know, of course, a lot of these statistics are underreported. But even the 200 million number of, of women who are women and girls who are missing, there's, we have approximately the population of 300 million in the United States. I mean, it's two thirds of the population of the United States. I mean, that's the amount of numbers of people we're talking about. And that drives human trafficking. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I'm, uh, I'm sad to admit, you know, just listening in on what's and just watching what's going on in the media over the last you know, six, seven months and some of these high profile cases that have come out and uh, leaders and organizations. I'm certainly not naive to think that this doesn't exist in the world, but I am a bit surprised that in 2017, 2018, how much of this and how blatantly and, so, and it was in many organizations is still there. It's really stunning. And I think it's worth a, it's worth all of us to take a step back and think like, wow, if this is going on in so many different organizations, so many different places, you know, it, uh, of course, of course, it's happening in every community. Absolutely, and, at some level, and and every community is different, of course. But it I mean, we just just by the sheer numbers. I mean, forget everything else. Just by the numbers, you you know that it's happening in almost every faith community at some level. Um, and and most of us know people who are struggling with this right now. And when you look at what happens to the the victims, if they speak up, the CDC's report showed 75% of harassment victims experienced retaliation for when they spoke up. So it's not wise. You might lose your job. And that, that's, a real, that's a real concern. A single mom, you're just going to have to take it. In some pr- professions, it's understood that this is going to be part of what's happening. And I'm not referring to Hollywood. I'm thinking about being um, a young nurse on night duty and, you know, 
be really careful when Dr. So-and-so comes in because he tends to have wandering hands. Um, those are things that they actually prepare you for as a young woman entering a new profession. Why is that even part of what anyone would say? As an older person now, I'm thinking, I should have I shouldn't have said, oh, okay, I'll make sure I keep the the counter between us or I'm on the other side or whatever. Evasive tactics that we use. And I love, I've often quoted Jackson Katz, who always includes a great exercise that is one of my favorite, where he has our students have two columns and he asks all the guys what they did today to avoid getting raped and um, you know, the guys all laugh and, and there's hardly anything written up there that they could even um, creatively write. And then he asks all the girls, what did you do? And they're like, well, I kept my doors locked. I carry my keys this way. I watch and make sure that I have a buddy when I go out to the parking. They just have, they fill up two sheets of paper. Mm. So that you have to start asking yourself why that is. And in this statement, it is just taking a stand. Violence against a woman is, a, is violence against all of us. And so we have to all be called to action. And the two action steps for our churches particularly are listed at the end of the statement. So I'm going to read action step one to you because I don't want to misstate it or paraphrase it too, too much. The first call to action is to stand with women who experience violence, a call to solidarity by making space for women to break their silence in our congregations and communities. Recognizing each woman's inherent dignity, we call on churches to create protected spaces where survivors of violence can offer their stories as they choose and where the body can receive these stories with empathy, love, and care. When you think about that call for solidarity to make a space, if there is no place for me to tell my story, it's like being invisible. Mm. And it's like having someone hit the mute button, to use common vernacular now. And without the ability to, to tell my story, how do I begin to build safer places um, how does the, the local church get involved? And so creating a safe space. Many times I teach, you know, I teach family violence and we talk about the, the community response to a woman who stays in a violent situation because she has no options. She doesn't have the finances. She doesn't have a place to go. And yet they blame her because she isn't, isn't leaving that situation. Mm-hmm. Instead of blaming him, for being the abuser. Right. And it's like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. And and I think the that takes us then to the second action step. So before you read the second one, I, I am curious about this. You may be getting this, but um, this is one of those things that I, I suspect if we surveyed all the pastors we know in church communities, you know, we would we would find broad agreement with that statement. And yet I also think we would probably run into situations where people would say, Okay, I'd like to create that safe space. But how? Like, doesn't my church community have that? And if it doesn't, like, what would I do to take a step? And I know you speak and consult with lots of churches, Sandy. Of churches and faith communities you've seen that have done this well or taken a good first step, what what is a good first step uh, to begin that creating that kind of space? I think one of the best ways 
is making sure that the people that are in your church have training so they know how to walk with people who have experienced violence, who have trauma in their backgrounds, people who know who to call if they need resources, people with training knowing that if you're helping someone leave a domestic violence situation, if you're helping someone gain the courage to file a sexual harassment assault, that you also are going to be there after that initial action has done because there will be fallout from that. There may be violence. We know that that happens if the woman leaves and takes the children, then perhaps the husband comes after her. And sometimes it's the reverse, but 90% of the time it's not that way. And so having people on your staff and, and volunteers at the church that know who to call. I was, I was really proud of my husband recently, because many of you know he pastors um, a little church here in Southern California. And he, I, we got home, and he's telling me about his day, and he tells me about a particular circumstance. And I was like, why didn't you call me? He said, because I had the number you gave me. And so he called him and there are different numbers for different resources and in different communities here in OC, Orange County, we use OC 211 to call for resources for housing for someone who needs to leave or doesn't have a place to go, those kind of things. But you need to know what that is in your community and local pastors should have a list of resources that even their secretary that answers the phone knows how to advise somebody. But creating that safe space is going to be support groups. It's going to be people to walk with them and sometimes partnering in your community because a church cannot usually sustain a budget that would cover all of those resources. So it's a good place for a public-private partnership and you know who to call in the community that provides those resources. Mm, Very helpful. Thank you. So then the second statement uh, for action is to stand up for women who experience violence. And I'm losing my voice, Dave. Do you want to read that second call to action? The second call to action says, to stand up for women who experience violence, a call to advocacy, repenting of our silent ascent to systems, structures, and practices that harm our sisters. We desire to spark action at all levels affecting the lives of women. We call to leaders and influencers within the greater faith community to action. We invite the body of Christ to adopt a genuine willingness to repent where we have failed and to fight both systemic and individual injustices in our midst. So when I listen to that, um, and I love the fact that it says structural, I think back to studying for teaching the Intro to Women's Studies class, and I found an author that I just, I've read both of her books and I keep them on my closest bookshelf because I'm constantly picking it up and and referring to it with my students. Gerda Lerner wrote a book about the creation of patriarchy. And so I like her definition of patriarchy because that's the structure where this is rooted. We've heard lots of pundits analyze the sense of entitlement that someone may have. And that entitlement may be based on financial um, superiority. It may be based on higher priorities, higher levels of, of leadership and, and ownership in a company. So you have financial 
um, superiority over someone. And it can also, and this is where it's important for us to look in our own backyard, it can also be based on spiritual authority. And that creates an imbalance. And we look at the premises of power. And when there is an imbalance of power, and we see that across every spectrum of life, whether we're talking about politics, city, government, whoever has the power, the other side is much more vulnerable to some, some form of abuse. So her definition of patriarchy, she says, there's a problem with the word patriarchy, which most feminists use, is that it has a narrow traditional meaning. The system, historically derived from Greek and Roman law, in which the male head of the household had absolute legal and economic power over his dependent female and male family members. This usage distorts historical reality. The patriarchal dominance of male family heads over their kin is much older than classical antiquity. And into the 19th century, male dominance in the family took new forms and was not ended. Patriarchy, in its wider definition, means the manifestation and institutionalization of male dominance over women and children in the family and the extension of male dominance over women in society in general. It implies that men hold power in all the important institutions of society and that women are deprived of access to such power. It does not imply that women are either totally powerless or totally deprived of rights, influence, and resources. So how do we look at that? And uh, there's lots of little ways to assess what patriarchy looks like in a community. One of the tools that are often used um, in visiting countries and doing uh, reports on violence against women is to look at the government and see how many men are in power and how many women. And of course, you know, in many governments, there are no women. There are no voices. Indeed. And the UN set up a preferred uh, protocol that parliament and legislators should be 30% women. And I remember when I visited Iraq and the parliament folks said to me, "Um, we have 30% women because they just passed this law to come into international um, standards. And you only have 16% in the US. Mm -hmm. Whoa, think about that. Where is the imbalance of power for women in the United States? Does this impact how we respond to the one in five in our own U.S. Center for Disease Control? Does it impact how the um, reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which is coming up in 2018 and would be of interest to all of you? Oh, for sure it does. And we see it at, at it seems like many levels of government, Congress, and, and all kinds of things that are decisions are being made. And um, and when you were saying institutional structure, Sandy, I, I was thinking back just to thinking about how we handle some of this in our our own family. Bonnie and I have been asked to sometimes you know, over the years, you know, support an organization or get involved. And one of the things we've learned to do is we'll go onto a website and we'll look at the organization. And we'll look at who's on the board of directors mm. or who's on the board of elders. And if it's all white men, that conversation kind of stops there for us as far as, you know, if this is an organization we would engage with, you know, we're very intentional when we engage with organizations. There are, there are times we have made an exception to that for other reasons, but we're very intentional about looking at that of like, how's this organization structured? We very intentionally 
are part of a church community where the distribution of the people on our uh, on our session, our, our elders, looks like the distribution of the congregation. It's That's very diverse. such a good point, because when you look at church literature now, it is predominantly, there's usually more than 50% of the members are women. And yet you look up on the platform and you don't see it 50 or 60% women. Oh, so it yeah. doesn't reflect the constituency. Yeah. And that leaves some areas for improvement because we're being very positive here and taking advantage of this moment in history to redefine how we as, as an evangelical community respond and begin to make corrections that would adjust how patriarchy has contributed to this sense of male entitlement. For someone who maybe is hearing about this for the first time, Sandy, um, and thinking about this in the context of everything that's going on in the news, um, what's a good first step? Is it to go to the website and to and to look at this and consider it, or or is there something else that's even helpful to start first, or maybe in addition to? Well, I think it's important to begin to. I, I remember a pastor locally that came to the Global Center for Women and Justice, and he said, "You know, our leaders, we're trying to decide if women should be." allowed to be ministers, if women should be allowed to be board members. And so I wanted to do, do, do some research, and I thought this would be a good place. We had some great conversations. We connected him with Christians for Biblical Equality, and eventually their church created space for women to be leaders on the same equal footing as men. And, and I think from the the perspective of structural change, that's an important first step is to begin to look at what is your leadership like, because you can make change. You're the ones in power. We can, uh, and I'm not going to go out and paint signs and march in front of your church, Dave. Actually, I might just come visit your church. <laughs> but those are, those are some of the important, because you have a circle of influence that I don't have access to as a male. And right. many of our listeners and pastors who whose hearts really want to make a difference. And it's very easy to find some women in the church who will start a support group for women that might be victims of violence. Because you can't, as a, as a male pastor, you're not going to be able to lead that. You can yeah. create space for it. But really beginning to look at your own leadership structure. Are there women and, and here's the thing that's interesting. Many churches that technically have policies and bylaws that allow women to fill leadership roles, they don't. And I was, I was asking someone at a church like that, I said, I saw on your website that women can be elders and women can be pastors, but I don't see that here. And the response was, oh, people here wouldn't accept that. And my response is if they haven't seen it, yeah. That's why they yeah. don't accept it. So you as a, as a pastor, if you're listening, if you model this, if you begin to intentionally ask women to come and preach, eventually it will become normal. It'll be a little uncomfortable the first few times. Mm -hmm. And the first time you add a woman's name to the business meeting to be voted for as an elder, that may be a little uncomfortable. But for those of you who already have bylaws that allow it, this is the year, 2018, to make steps to actually make it happen. Yeah. 
taking steps is so important, Sandy. I mean, I, I had two thoughts when you were speaking about that. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so I remember the very first time I ever went to a church service and a woman was uh, preaching the sermon. It, that was very different. Like that seemed like it didn't seem wrong to me, but it just seemed very different from what I was used to. And now it seems completely normal. Uh, like, of course, you know, we'd have we have women and men preach at our church, but I can remember a time where that was unusual. And so the other thought I had is. You know, when you were talking about the the pastor who came and was came to you and said, "Hey, I'd like to study this and really think of like how do we do this intentionally." Uh, on one level, I think a lot of us responded that we're like, "Oh my gosh, that's great!" You know, let's help help that person to engage and their community to engage. And in another level, I really find also that a struggle for me personally of like, "Are you kidding me? Like, why do you need to spend six months researching this?" Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, like, be done with it already. Why yeah. are you not moving on this? Like really you have to spend six months to justify. And I, so this is just part of this. Is, I'm saying that, Sandy, because I know there are people in our listening community who also have that response. Mm. And that to me, and I know this saying that and having those thoughts go through my mind is not the mature response to have of, yes, I'm at a different place now and other people are a different place, but we need to also work to meet people where they are if they are willing to take that step and to help move help them move along that journey and i think that it is as challenging for us as it is for them to meet them Absolutely. at that level um and it's that i mean there's a lot of courage on both sides to do that to not just be the person like of course you should believe this like why don't you see things the way i do but to be able to if we can like stop and really place ourselves and really truly understand where that person's coming from um where their tradition has led them where their community has led them and also at the same time to really appreciate that desire they have to say, yes, in spite of all that, we do want to change and we are thinking about it. And I think that's a really, and, that's a beautiful place to be. And the motivation for that, we do things for others that we maybe wouldn't do for ourselves. And so we begin mm-hmm. to understand that a 14-year-old who was molested by her youth pastor because there was no, and there was no way for her to tell anyone in her church, there was no safe place, became, uh, began to self-medicate and got involved with drugs. Or a 16-year-old who was in my office a month ago and finding out that during a mission trip, a, a youth pastor was so inappropriate. And, but there's no one to tell. There's no way to tell. That begins to create, and if you're against human trafficking, um, those are the kinds of kids who become more vulnerable. So you can do this for a bigger, a bigger issue. You can look at those global outcomes that are the result of being silent. Oh, indeed. Sandy, there is so much we could say about this. When you and I were putting our notes together for the show, I was joking, we, we, we have a good seven or eight hours. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We could talk about it. We got to find ways forward for change. Indeed. Indeed. Well, uh, so I think one of the key calls to action here is to uh, to to check out the website uh, silenceisnotspiritual.org, and to and of course we'll have all the links for everything we've mentioned here on the podcast in our show notes. And uh, we would really encourage you to uh, check out the website for all those resources at endinghumantrafficking.org. That's where you'll find the notes for this episode 163, but also all the notes and resources for every episode we air. And of course, Sandy, this being Prevention Month, we are asking you to also take the step to think about 
taking the next step in engaging with our community, uh, in building partnerships and relationships, and continuing to study the issues issues so you can make uh, be a voice and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And one key way you can do that is to learn more about the Ensure Justice Conference coming up here March 2nd and 3rd, 2018. Sandy, what's our focus for this year's conference? The link between substance abuse and human trafficking. And we've talked about some of those in the last couple episodes uh, already and more to come, of course, as, as time goes on. So if you haven't already uh, learned about the conference, go to insurejustice.com. Join us here live in Southern California, March 2nd and 3rd, 2018. We look forward to meeting you in person. And Sandy, I'll see you again uh, next week. All right. Thanks, Dave. Take care, everybody.